The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hi everyone, I'm Elaine Clark and this is the Mindful Matters Podcast. This show brings together practitioners, thought leaders, teachers, and inspiring individuals on how to support your mental health and well-being. If you notice by the title today, this episode is all about anti-oppression. This is a topic I've wanted to dig into for a while. This conversation is important. It's important to me personally, and I believe it's important to the future of our world. I first heard about my guest today, Naya Daly, after I stumbled on Solga Yoga, a Toronto-based yoga community. Naya is a social entrepreneur who educates and empowers movement facilitators of color with movement classes, workshops, and trainings. She founded Solga Yoga with the intention to make yoga more accessible and diverse by offering wellness experiences that are affordable and inclusive of all ethnicities, body types, and genders. She also offers workshops on how to make wellness practices more anti-oppressive. Naya is an advocate for dignity, equality, and for change, and the seeds for her path were planted early in her life, which has compelled her to champion humanity along the way. In today's episode, we talk about her personal upbringing, uh, how she got into this space. We talk about what anti-oppression practices are, the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, and how we can use critical self-study to empower ourselves towards anti-oppression. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. Naya, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's a little interesting to hear someone speak about you. So I'm flattered for the uh, for the summary. Gosh, well, you're so welcome. And Naya, you know, you're doing such brilliant work in the world to support people. I think we have, you know, so much good, so many good things to talk about today in our conversation. Uh, but first, I want to take it back and talk a bit about you and your background and how you got into this space. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great place to start. Um, so a little bit about myself, um, kind of expanding on what you've already shared. Uh, I was born in Ottawa um, to a Jamaican um, mother and a Canadian-born father, um, white father. Um, I grew up in Toronto, a really diverse, eclectic city. And then after high school, uh, I started kind of my collegiate and college journey in the United States. So um, I come from a really diverse background, which I feel like is kind of, like you said, planted the seeds of the work that I'm doing now and kind of given me, I think, a unique perspective and insight into issues surrounding race and identity, um, oppression, and all of the other topics that we'll hopefully get to cover today. Um, my yoga journey, interestingly enough, started when I got back home after being in the States for eight years. I was playing university basketball and was really looking for a way to keep in shape, was drawn to yoga um, strictly for the physical benefits of it. And after practicing for a few years, I really felt called to take a teacher training 
and and kind of share my practice with with black people and people again that looked like me um, because of all the benefits um, from my mental health and well-being that I experienced um, and due to my practice. So that's kind of what led me to the yoga world um, uh, in terms of my my education. I did my undergrad in the United States in criminal justice. And when I got back home, I started my master's in social work at University of Windsor. So I finished that last year. And this past year, I really had the opportunity to kind of integrate these two loves of mine, my kind of pursuits and love of social justice and my love of yoga and wellness and just um, kind of holistic health. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you and I are both yoga teachers and teacher trainers. And what I love so much is that you're creating opportunities for movement facilitators to be more educated on anti-oppression practices. I've personally seen a need or a gap for this over the years. Uh, what inspired you? Like, what was the impulse to create these opportunities? Yeah, I think I had the experience of a lot of people of color in that I loved yoga. I was interested. I found a studio home that felt um, comfortable for me. Um, but I reached a point in my practice where um, I became a lot more, I think, aware and conscious of the fact that I was one of the few people of color in the spaces um, that I occupied. And to add to that, I realized that many of the people that I was learning from um, we're learning from were white women. Um, mm -hmm. And again, to me, it became problematic in that I felt safe and comfortable in that space because of my upbringing and because of my identity and privilege. But I realized that for many of my uh, members mm -hmm. of my community, that would create a huge barrier just to coming to yoga and reaping the benefits of all things yoga. So the need for Solga and for doing the work that I'm doing now was really birthed out of the realization that ultimately there are these huge disparities um, and a huge lack of representation in wellness spheres as in almost every other sphere in, in you know, the world that we live in today. And there was a need for um, a platform that really amplified the work works of, of Black creators. Yeah, and I love it. I think it's an amazing opportunity what you've created. Um, what is an anti-oppressive practice and how does anti-oppression connect to our mental health? Well, I think I like to think of anti-oppressive practice as kind of an umbrella term that really captures multiple theories and practices and, and really essentially a way of being in the world. So anti-oppressive practice, I like to think of it as well, first, I think it's important to backtrack to, to kind of define oppression. And I like to think of oppression as power and prejudice together. So ultimately, um, it's the use of power to really kind of marginalize and disempower people. And often those people that are disempowered and marginalized or are visible minorities and BIPOC individuals, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So to be anti-oppressive is to really counteract that and to minimize your power, to step down and to step back and to really uplift um, and support voices of people that have often been disenfranchised by society. And I love the kind of word practice thrown in there because it's not just theorizing and sitting and reflecting on it, but it's actually doing it, being it and incorporating that into everything that you do in your life. Yeah. I love that. And so how does that relate to our mental health? You know, because this is a podcast that we sort of have a, a specific focus on mental health and how we can best support our mental health. How do you sort of draw the link there? Well, I think 
I mean, if we all reflect on our own experiences um, of our, our lives and growing up and times in our lives where we felt oppressed, where we felt silenced, where we have felt powerless, and then we've reflected on how that made us feel about ourselves, about our place in the world, uh, I think it's a really natural and obvious link to mental health. If an individual is facing oppression, experiencing oppression, not only on a personal level, but on a structural and systematic level, it will eventually eat away at your identity. It will make you feel like you don't belong. It'll make you feel less than. Um, it can lead to feelings of depression, anxiety, uh, trauma, right? So ultimately, when individuals, uh, marginalized individuals, are constantly exposed and dealing with the ramifications of oppression, it chips away at the very fabric of who they are, and it really makes them question whether and where they belong in this world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we are really finally starting to have very real, uncomfortable and necessary conversations about racism and injustice. Mm -hmm. uh, the pervasive and the destructive nature of inequalities, I think, are baked into our institutions and our society. What does it mean to be anti-racist? Um, I was actually reading uh, a book uh, recently by Dr. Ibram Kendi. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called How to Be Anti-Racist. And there's actually a quote here that I, I thought we can kind of build off of. Um, he says, uh, and I quote, uh, the opposite of racist isn't not racist, mm -hmm. it's anti-racist. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? One either allows racial inequalities to persevere uh, as a racist or confronts racial inequalities as an anti-racist. There mm -hmm. is no in-between safe space. Yeah. I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, I think he, he speaks directly to neutrality, right? This idea that um, status quo and, and being silent is, is no longer acceptable. And I think probably Part of the issue with, with the term racism is that ultimately, when we think of racism, many people think of kind of overt acts of racism. They think of the Ku Klux Klan, they think of lynching, they think of discriminating against someone in the workplace and not giving them a job because of the color of their skin. But racism is far more insidious than that. Um, and microaggressions and those nuanced things that occur to people of color on a daily basis that that's hard to explain and that white people cannot understand, those are the things that often really, again, chip away at the fabric of who you are and make you feel less than and as, as though you don't belong. So really in today's day and age, being anti-racist is it's not enough to say nothing. It's not enough to actively engage in a system of racism. You have to actually work against it. You have to identify it not only in the systems around you, but in yourself. Um, and I think that's the key part to being anti-racist. Your attitude, your actions, they have to intentionally um, uplift um, and, and level the playing fields in terms of uplifting the voices and platforms um, and well-being of people of color. And that's really what it's about. It's an ongoing process and it's not enough just to be neutral. It's not enough just to have a black friend or a black partner. Um, you have to actually actively work against it. And it starts with yourself. Yeah. 
you know, I'm, I'm beginning to see how much more I can do and that I must do. Uh, I've been listening, learning, taking more effective action. I think there's such an intricate and complex web of racism in, and it's in every piece of our world. And mm-hmm. I think that we all have blind spots. You know, I've, I've seen them in myself. Uh, I've personally been in humble student mode this past year since Black Lives Movement. How can we, you know, I really wanted to ask you today, you know, how can we use critical self-study to empower ourselves towards anti-oppression? Well, I mean, I love the term, and I think many of us have heard of critical self-reflection, and it was a term that was used often in um, in my undergrad and my graduate studies. And the, the problem that I have with critical self-reflection, even though it has the word critical in it, which I love, um, is often we think of reflection as a really almost passive activity, right? When I think of reflecting and meditating, often many of us think of sitting and pondering and and, and being really in our heads, right? And for me, self-study, um, it takes it like a notch above that, right? It involves actually investigating, challenging, and questioning the things that you think, that you believe, and the way that you are, right? And your identity in this world. So ultimately, critical self-study is an essential part to becoming anti-racist because, again, if you are not aware of your blind spots, of your bias, of your assumptions, of your prejudice, of your own identity and privilege, then how can you dismantle that in the world around you, right? So critical self-study for me really involves kind of four steps. First, you have to be humble. You have to approach this with humility, understanding that you know nothing, right? And that we're all kind of starting at that space of knowing nothing and having to be really receptive um, to feedback, to criticism, to being called in by members of marginalized communities and by members of your own community. Then it involves the critical self-study, which is the reflecting, the meditating, the education, the stepping in it, right? The saying the wrong things and then being corrected. It's being courageous and putting yourself out there and engaging with people And then finally, it's connection, right? A a key part of critical self-study to me is actually connecting in an authentic way to the communities around you that are different than you. And I think that's the part that's missing. You can do as many trainings as you'd like. You can read all the books in the world. But ultimately, if in your circle, nobody looks differently than you, then you're never really going to understand or change at a, a really deep and genuine and authentic level. So that connection and that relationship piece is so important. And again, I I kind of emphasize authentic because it doesn't mean go, you know, grab some black friends or some gay friends or some trans friends, but it means that you have to put yourself in situations where you feel uncomfortable, where you might be the visible minority. Um, That way you can kind of understand just, you know, in, in the smallest, most simplistic sense of what it feels like to be a, a BIPOC individual living in this white world. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, And I would love actually, like, do you have any blind spots off the top of your head that you can share with us? Like, what do you, what have you seen to be the most common blind spots that people need to sort of reflect on or um, empower themselves uh, towards self-study? Well, I mean, I think I can even speak to myself because I think one of the misconceptions that we have and when we think of privilege is that it's only white privilege, yeah. And and one of the key concepts that, you know, is often discussed 
um, when we're having discussions around racism and anti-oppression is intersectionality and this idea that we are all uh, multifaceted, complex individuals. So speaking for myself, I am a lighter skinned, cisgendered, heterosexual, English speaking, um, and I can go on and on. Yeah. Black woman, right? I have a white father. I was, you know, I went to university. I have had a healthy childbirth. I'm able to actually bear children, right? There's so many layers to my identity that um, equip me with privilege. So it would be really easy for someone in my position um, to say, well, I'm black, right? I'm oppressed and I am, and I ultimately can have blind spots. I can oppress others, but, but I can, because again, there are layers to my identity that draw me closer to power. So ultimately, I think it's really important when you're thinking of your blind spots to not go to the most obvious thing. Well, well, I'm I'm white, but I'm poor. Mm. You know, I'm white, but I'm trans. Or, you know, th- those things that we can default to so we can, again, feel some sort of connection to this struggle and to this movement. Ultimately, it's focus on the areas in your life that ultimately draw you closer to power. And for many of us, that might be education, that might be our socioeconomic status. And for those of us who are white, it's digging a little deeper to look at the ways in which um, other levels and aspects of your identity draw you closer to power. And ultimately, the things that you take for granted, you have to come to a realization that many people aren't afforded those advantages, right? And that is essentially privilege. So we really, again, this is part of critical self-study. It's going deeper than just the color of your skin mm-hmm. or your sexual identity or, you know, whether or not you, you English is your first language. It's like there's so many layers that we can peel back, but that involves, again, critical self-study, education, and being in relationship with people that are different than you. Yeah. And on that note, can you talk to us about the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? Uh, for anyone listening, what are some of the lessons that you would pass on? Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely um, uh, a topic that's been discussed quite quite frequently in today's day and age. And, and this idea, again, of, of cultural appropriation versus appreciation, what that means, right? I think many of us appreciate cultures. And I think another kind of term to throw in there is cultural exchange. So mm-hmm. cultural exchange is really when when two cultures at level playing fields um, exchange things in a fair and equitable way, right? So that might mean that, you know, uh, somebody moves to Japan and they take up maybe a national way of dressing and, you know, the person in the store that they're engaging with speaks in English and they're exchanging things in a way that, that almost feels like it's on level playing grounds. The challenge with appropriation ultimately is that the appropriators um, do it often without the permission or consent of the community that they are borrowing from, right? And it also is appropriation often when the individual that's borrowing or appropriating is in a position of power. And again, when we look at society and how things have been laid out, that often means white people, right? So without permission, without consent, I also think of this idea of appropriation as um, what is your authentic connection to the community in which you are borrowing from? So for instance, if you like wearing cornrows, you love listening to hip hop and you attribute both of those things to black people, but have very little understanding of black culture, have no black friends and relationships, have never actually 
um, been connected to Black communities in a meaningful way, have never given back or engaged at a deeper level, then you're almost kind of minimalizing what Black culture is to a hairstyle without even actually understanding the depths and the meaning behind it. Um, and, and those are signs of appropriation. It's not always that simple, but to me, I, I kind of challenge people to say that if it feels wrong, and if you even have to question it, then that's generally a sign that you might be appropriating. So ultimately, again, I come back to this idea of relationships because I think it's so important. If you aren't in genuine relationships with people in the communities, um, you know, where you're boring from their culture, then you probably shouldn't do it, right? Like don't wear a hijab if you don't have Muslim individuals in your life, right? Don't wear a bindi if at the end of the day, there's no South Asian people in your life. You've never been to India. You have no idea what it represents. You know, cornrows and hip hop, the black community is so much deeper and richer than that. So really take some time to actually understand the roots and traditions and then connect in a meaningful and authentic way with those communities rather than just kind of using little pieces that kind of work for you to kind of build you up or to make you look aesthetically more pleasing or whatever it is and whatever kind of motivates and drives you to kind of pull from other people's cultures. Yeah, I love that. So important. Uh, I love so many of those examples. And, you know, we have a lot of practitioners, yoga instructors in our community um, that I think would find, you know, what you're offering really valuable. Can you talk to us about your process or even some of your trainings and, and how you incorporate the, the anti-oppression into the trainings? Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm really excited about this um, workshop that I've been offering since last year, because again, in my experience, I learned quite a bit during my 200 hour and the subsequent trainings that I did. But what was missing was ultimately um, educators that look like me. And what was also missing, although we touched on yoga philosophy, there wasn't an in-depth discussion about issues of cultural appropriation and how to really honor the roots and traditions of yoga mm -hmm. and how to create spaces um, for students that um, were not safe, um, but were, I think, instilled a feeling of belongingness more than inclusivity. Um, and that, to me, what that, that's what was missing in my own journey. So our anti-oppressive uh, workshop that we offer, the first half of it really touches on anti-oppressive terminology. So really understanding the terminology, the words that are used, the terms and concepts that are discussed so often that some of us just kind of nod our heads to, right? We don't want to be the one to say, sorry, what does that mean? But we first have to understand the language. What do these things mean? We then examine the history of racism and discrimination in Canada. So touching on our Indigenous um, you know, communities and what has happened to them and where they stand now. Looking at, again, the foundations and roots of yoga and making sure that we are knowledgeable about it, even if we don't incorporate necessarily into our asana, our physical practice. We then, the second half of the workshop, looks at really practical ways we can incorporate less oppressive language in the way that we cue movements. Um, it looks at what anti-oppressive spaces look like. So for instance, making sure that your space is not only physically accessible, um, in the sense of having ramps and making sure that individuals um, can access your washrooms and that washrooms are labeled in a way that um, doesn't exclude individuals, but also making sure that, you know, you offer classes in other languages. 
which is something I've, I've rarely seen in yoga studios, or that teachers introduce themselves and their pronouns in classes, right, without assuming that they are a, a she, a he, or a they, right? So it's taking steps and, and not just going with the status quo, but it's actually making sure that everything we do from how we greet students at the, the start of class um, to how we say goodbye at the end of class uh, creates a space that makes people feel like they belong, that they are seen and affirmed. And that really is what the workshop is all about. Yeah. Naya, I love what you've created and I love that, you know, you're pioneering this. I think you're uh, such a great advocate for this and for this message. For anyone that is interested, how can they connect with you? So you can find me at Solga Yoga um, on Instagram. My um, kind of personal Instagram account is daily underscore moves. Um, you can also email me at solgayoga at gmail.com. And I am in the process, thankfully, of um, getting a website together. So my hope is that by the spring of this year, I will have that ready to go. Perfect. Naya, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you for having me. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tawny Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwoods. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. No